Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law360. I'm Natalie Rodriguez, and joining me is Law360 Supreme Court reporter Jimmy Hoover. Hey, Jimmy, how's it going? It's going well, Natalie. How are you? Good, good. You know, it's been a, a bit of a, a down week uh, for the court, but there's still a bunch of news to get to. There is some news that we needed to get to. Um, there were no oral arguments this week. There was just one case taken up on Friday um, from its last conference. It's a case. It's basically a dispute, a division among the lower courts over the meaning of the federal aggravated identity theft statute that has to do with how broad that law is. Um, we'll probably be you know, covering that and talking about that as it gets closer to when it's set for oral arguments later in the term. But that was the only cert grant from the conference. Lots of denials, obviously. So this week we're going to be talking about, you know, some some different things that are going on. Uh, since we recorded last week's episode, um, there was a pretty pretty interesting event. It's always It always takes place around November. It's the Federalist Society's, you know, National Lawyers Convention. And it's kind of one of those rare moments when you put a uh, kind of like an image to the the phrase conservative legal movement. You know, it's like one of those phrases that kind of seems like an abstraction. But in fact, it is, you know, a collection of real life, human living, breathing human beings in pursuit of a common goal, which is, you know, the promotion of conservative legal ideas at the judiciary and in the, in the, in the um, broader legal community. And it's often a who's who event basically of the conservative legal movement i know um i've never attended jimmy i know you have in the past though a d- definite who's who um so i've attended the the kind of the the big antonin scalia memorial dinners that they do they hold it in the the main hall of union station um they really dress up union station um with you know lights and tables and catering and you know, everybody's wearing tuxedos, and there's senators in the in the, in the crowd. There's there's judges at you know from state courts to federal courts, law clerks, law students, et cetera, et cetera. And typically, you'll have a big like headliner speech from maybe a justice of the Supreme Court. I've I've, I've been to some speeches by um, uh, Gorsuch after he was confirmed, and Kavanaugh after he was confirmed. Um, there was no real like uh, lectures this year by any of the uh, justices of the Supreme Court, but there was, you know, there were four justices in attendance um, at the at the lecture last week, um, and uh, one of them in particular, he was kind of the toast of the town, Justice Samuel Alito, um, obviously coming off the heels of a huge term at the Supreme Court when he was the majority author of Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health. He, along with uh, Barrett, and I think maybe some of the other justices too, I wasn't in attendance this year, but I saw some of the reporting to come out of it along with some videos um, posted to Twitter. You know, he was the subject of a standing ovation. He even got a shout out for his, you know, uh, his decision in the Dobbs case, which (laughs) spurred another standing ovation with a number of people in the crowd actually turning to face him. So I don't know, it kind of seems like a bit of a victory lap, if you will. What do you make of that? Yeah, well, he's definitely having a moment, right, I I think, on the court and in the public sphere right now. Um, So I I guess not too inconceivable, right, that he's getting the standing ovation at this, you know, big conservative hobnob event. Um, Now, also, though, this uh, dinner is part of a larger convention that also holds um, a number of panels um, between Thursday and Saturday. One of those raised a, a couple eyebrows, um, and it featured some SCOTUS heavyweight attorneys uh, talking about the criticism of attorneys for their work on behalf of 
unfavorable clients. Um, and most notable speaking in that panel was Paul Clement, um, the former Solicitor General and, you know, fairly prolific a Supreme Court lawyer who listeners may recall split from his old firm, uh, Kirkland and Ellis, in June because of his um, refusal to stop representing gun rights organizations um, and to stop representing clients in gun matters. Um, Clement had some strong words on the subject um, and said that the world of big law had gone, quote, too woke, unquote, for conservatives. Um, He continued and said, part of the phenomenon is that big law firms are becoming increasingly woke because their clients are becoming increasingly woke. Um, And he really came out strongly criticizing how corporatized the legal industry and big law in general, in particular, um, is getting, you know, that lawyers are increasingly viewing their work as a business rather than a profession and choosing their clients, you know, based on, you know, what makes the best financial sense. Um, You know, like, look, I'm not sure I just I really agree with him on the too woke comment, although I think there is a nugget of truth to, you know, his criticism sometimes of just how much sway certain clients can have at certain big law firms. Um, you know, I think there is something to be said about that. Um, right. I don't if know, Jimmy, what, if, do you, if what do you think? Well, I, I mean, there probably is some truth to like the big institutional firm clients that pay, you know, I, I, I wish I could just get a peek at some of those in those billables that they're that they're charged for some of the big matters and you know for these clients if they have a particular viewpoint and they see the firm that they're paying this incredible amount of money to start undertaking other representations that they believe to be completely contradictory to their values then yeah i could see that that presents a bit of a conflict and maybe some of those big law firms would be beholden to the the bigger institutional firm clients um, I think where he goes a little bit astray is considering these companies too too woke in the first place. I mean, a lot of them are litigating in areas that could be totally uh, contradictory to like progressive platforms, whether they're in the areas of things like employment law or you know other areas of business law. Now, there is some truth that on particular social issues, maybe some like giant tech companies like Apple, for instance, is a, is a good example of one that has filed amicus briefs at the Supreme Court in support of things like the DACA program and in support of um, the LGBTQ litigants in, for instance, I think it was in the Masterpiece Cake Shop. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised to see that again in you know some of the cases coming down the pike. Um, so it, it, it's kind of, you know, I, I think it's a little bit more complicated than to just say like they're too woke or not. Um, they are giant companies that have probably diversity values baked into them, but they also can be, you know, very deliberate about protecting their own basic bottom line and interests, which can run up against some progressive or quote unquote woke values. Now, there are also other panelists, um, at this speech, uh, Seth Waxman of Wilmer Hale, Lisa Blatt of Williams and Connolly, and Canon Shamugam of Paul Weiss, uh, all Supreme Court heavyweights. Um, and they did push back on this idea that there's no place for conservatives at lo- large law firms and on the suggestion that divisive clients can't get adequate legal representation. Um, you know, Waxman and, and Blatt are both kind of, they, they acknowledge that they, uh, they on identify the more. Side. Yeah, yeah. That yeah. they ad- identify more on the progressive side. Um, Waxman, though, did bemoan the, this broader issue of like just how much 
conflict issues you can have at larger law firms. Um, I thought it was uh, kind of interesting that Clement actually made Waxman a job offer on the spot. Uh, <laughs> Waxman did not respond, and I would love to be a fly on the wall of the conversation that happened right after that panel uh, to know <laughs> what he said. Um, also, other notable kind of uh, comments being made, uh, Ken and Shamugam acknowledged, you know, he is in the minority as a conservative and Paul Weiss, but um, he said he doesn't want to send the message that conservatives should avoid big law. And, you know, yes, he's greatly disturbed by the trend of attacking lawyers for the representation of unpopular clients and positions um, rather, you know, than attacking perhaps the idea or the legal position, but attacking the lawyer themselves. Um, but he still, you know, came out in you know support of like, you know, wanting to welcome conservatives to the big law arena because it is, you know, sometimes such an important phase of your career, you know, to get certain experience and, you know, to learn as a lawyer. Um, you know, he said, I do think it's possible to be conservative at a large law firm and to thrive. Um, but there's no question that the atmosphere has become more difficult. Yeah, Cannon's an interesting one um, in that, you know, Paul Weiss is a firm that has toted its reputation and its work on behalf of liberal causes over the years and canon himself is a longtime member of the federal society so if, if there's any if there's ever an example of you know a conservative thriving at a big law firm it's definitely uh canon shamagam especially you know having uh leading the the fledgling uh supreme court practice at paul weiss uh, which didn't used to have a very big presence at the supreme court and now you know canon's at the lectern you know it's almost seems like every every session um, arguing cases, including some pretty big wins. I mean, you know, like the CFPB case, uh, I can't remember how long ago that was, but that was a pretty big win on behalf of his uh, clients in that case. Definitely an interesting discussion. It seems to be a hot topic as of late, um, you know, uh, with uh, conservative lawyers and judges bemoaning just kind of like the what they feel is their marginalization in, in the legal world. You know, there's obviously the whole debate around uh, Judge Ho and, and boycotting clerks from Yale Law School. Uh, we won't. We're not going to solve it on this podcast, um, but it's it's something to certainly pay attention to. I know David Latt, the blogger, uh, is a is, is has been all over this story. So maybe if we get him on the podcast, we can ask him about that. But let's move along to the shadow docket, Natalie. We're going to just run through like two quick updates. We've been doing this shadow docket segment basically on every episode because it has not gone away. Um, so we have a closed loop to the case that we've been talking about involving the chairwoman of the Arizona GOP, uh, Kelly Ward who had filed an emergency request with the Supreme Court to block a subpoena um, issued to her cell provider, T-Mobile, by the House January 6th committee, seeking records about her communications in the run-up to the January 6th insurrection. Um, the Supreme Court uh, this week on Monday rejected her appeal in a short order that where only uh, Justices Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito noted their dissents. Thomas's participation in the case has once again uh, raised eyebrows, given his wife's uh, you know, activities in the challenges following the 
uh, November 2020 election. Um, something to keep an eye on there. There's also a really interesting, fast developing situation in the Trump tax case at the Supreme Court. So it's called Trump versus the Committee on Ways and Means. And now that we've been talking about it, but Trump's basically asking the Supreme Court to block a subpoena issued to the Department of Treasury and the IRS from the House Ways and Means Committee currently run by the Democrats. Now, if you remember, we talked about how Chief Justice Roberts had put an administrative stay in the case, which temporarily uh, blocked the, the the Treasury Department from handing those tax returns over. These cover the years, I believe, 2015 through 2020. Um, now, this was an administrative stay. We've talked about that a lot, how that doesn't necessarily signal the, the majority's views of the underlying merits. But... We now have a situation where we have an incoming Republican Congress in the new year that is looking to basically close the book on this chapter of the House's interest in Trump's tax returns. We also have a situation where Trump has just this week declared um, his candidacy for the 2024 presidential election. So what does that do? That puts the Supreme Court in kind of the unenviable position now of having to decide whether Democrats get access to Trump's tax returns. You have to imagine Chief Justice Roberts is not particularly happy about being put in this position, uh, just given some of the other, uh, you know, divisive um, cases that have been at the court lately. They just cannot escape the Donald. They, As try as they might, they will always be brought back in, as uh, Michael Corleone says in, in Godfather 3. Um, so, yes, they... Um, are now faced with the decision of whether to extend the administrative stay, issue a, uh, a permanent stay on the um, D.C. Circuit's decision allowing the House committee to collect these tax returns from the Treasury Department, or whether they should reject it and basically give access to these House Democrats um, five years of uh, the president's, the former president's tax returns, which they'll only be able to ostensibly you know, review for a month or so. Although theoretically, you know, once they get access to it, there's no putting Pandora back in the box. Is that how the expression goes? I don't even know. Point is, once they get the tax returns, they can no longer be in the majority in the house and still have access to those returns and potentially release a report as minority members of the committee or something to that effect. So it's a really interesting situation now. Um, Obviously, you know, there aren't just the considerations around like timing. There are the underlying merits of the case. Now, um, each side has presented their own arguments for and against why these should be released. Trump basically says that um, the Mazar's decision, which is the one um, from 2021, 2020, it's all blended together, in which uh, the House was seeking uh, some of uh, the president's financial information from third-party accounting firms, Trump says that, you know, the Supreme Court in that decision set a really high standard for demands for the president's financial records. Well, uh, he's no longer the president anymore. And uh, the, the House Democrats have been very quick to remind the Supreme Court of that fact, saying that, you know, they are in pursuit of these records for legitimate legislative um, purposes, not just, you know, a political fishing expedition. And that the only way to improve their presidential uh, auditing system is to have access to these records. So the case has been fully briefed. We've got the reply now from, 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 the, from the former president. We could get a ruling in five minutes. We could get it in five days. So it, it'll be really interesting to see what happens here. Obviously, one we're watching closely. Um, 
Jimmy, I think that just about does it for us today, though. Uh, just a production note to our listeners. We are taking next week off for the Thanksgiving holiday. Hope everyone has a wonderful Thanksgiving, and we'll be back in two weeks for the return of oral arguments at the Supreme Court. Thanks, Natalie, and thank you to our listeners for tuning in. If you like this episode, please leave a review. We'd like to thank our producers, Stephen Trader and Kelly Marcano, and our executive producer, Amber McKinney. Additional reporting this week by Jess Crotchtangle. And music for the show comes from Slender Beats. For more information about all the high court action, go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law 360 in the term.